The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. We don't take on the easiest of cases. We could be a flat track bully um, picking very easy cases. We could have a 100% win rate. I mean, I'm absolutely certain of that. But that would trade impact, which only comes if you take on power, for vanity, right? I could say, I've won every single case that um, Good Law Project has brought, uh, and that would make me feel better. But the cost of doing that would be much less impact. Hello, and welcome to The Hearing. I'm Becky Anderson, and in this episode, I've got to meet and interview a man I've long admired for his tireless and sometimes controversial work in providing a voice when someone needs to speak out. Jolian Morn Casey, founder of The Good Law Project, has a new book out, Bringing Down Goliath, How Good Law Can Topple the Powerful. And he was kind enough to sit down with me and tell me a bit more about the book, his work, and who he is. The Hearing. Thank you so much for coming to talk to me today. I am a huge fan of your work. I wanted to say that up front. And um, one of the things that I love is how you have moved really from starting out your career as a tax barrister to becoming a, a, a well-known champion of the vulnerable, really. I, I feel that must be an incredibly powerful story and I am really intrigued to hear it. Would you mind telling me about that journey? Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's a very kind description and I'm really, really pleased to be on your podcast. So in bringing down Goliath, I begin with a quote from Bell Hooks. And the quote from Bell Hooks, um, who was a black American writer, is what we allow the mark of our suffering to become is in our own hands. Uh, And what it's signaling is exactly the question that you put to me, which is, in fact, I've returned to my to to my roots. So I had a very, very difficult childhood. I was, still am, the first member of the family to go to university. My mum was an unmarried mother at 21. She moved to New Zealand uh, and met a a school teacher who had also had a difficult childhood. They got married and eventually he adopted me. I had a very difficult relationship with him and I was kicked out of home when I was Um, I can't actually remember whether it was 15 or 16, and I lived off my own wits. So I worked cleaning um, the local girls' school, common room, the toilets, classrooms. Uh, I lived with two men, much older men, whose designs on me were not purely platonic, um, whilst I finished secondary school before moving to England. And... um, I never really wanted to be a tax lawyer. I've never been particularly interested in making lots of money, and there are few other good reasons to be a tax lawyer. And so I think what happened really was that I returned to the person I'd always wanted to be, which was somebody who gave voice to those who were ignored, who were bullied, who were mistreated, rather like the child I remember myself being, hence that line, what we allow the mark of our suffering to become is in our own hands. I felt very, very lucky that through my professional journey, uh, university, a barrister, a king's council, 
I acquired the tools and the means um, by which to be and be effectively uh, the sort of a voice, at least, for communities who are particularly um, left behind. I think that's incredibly powerful. And it resonates with me on some level. Obviously, I haven't had your experiences in life, but what it reminds me of is that when I decided I wanted to be a lawyer, I did it because I was interested in justice. And I think that's true of a lot of lawyers. I think that we all end up here eventually because we had an interest in justice. And at some point in our careers, a drift happens and we find that we end up acting for large moneyed interests. And what is so compelling to me about your story is that you that drift happened to you and as it happened to me and as it's happened to many others. And then you seem to have pulled right back from that drift and started the Good Law Project. How did that happen? Yeah, I mean, the profession is full, isn't it, of um, people, most of them men, in their 50s um, and 60s who can't remember why um, they became lawyers, um, who don't much like their lives, who carry on because um, they've acquired lifestyles, expensive lifestyles, to justify the jobs they do, the professional lives they lead, who feel trapped and don't really have any insight into how they found themselves in that state at 50 or 60, because it was never what they aspired to be. And I think the roots of the answer to that question lie in the way in which we train lawyers. So we don't invite law students to think of uh, lawyers as otherwise than mercenaries available for hire to advance the interests of their clients. We don't invite lawyers in their training to reflect on the relationship that the law has to the broader world. We don't invite them to reflect on the fact that the law uh, and legal practice is the servant of the public interest. Um, And I think they, you know, when you're young, you're less well equipped to interrogate the predicates to the way in which you're trained. Uh, And if you discover those predicates much later in life, it's difficult often for you to sort of extricate yourself from their from their consequences so that that i think is why so many of us find ourselves in the situation i was in in my 40s when i began to sort of pivot away from tax practice uh, and i did it i think because of that um still very vivid experience of uh, memories of um my own childhood which I'd never really wanted to to leave behind me. They remained fresh. I kindled those fires because I thought that something good would come from um, the energy that they gave me. And initially, I began to sort of trend away from pure legal practice in about 2013 when Margaret Hodge, uh, who was then chair of the Public Accounts Committee, was talking a lot about tax avoidance. That was something that I knew quite a lot about. Um, You know, if you're a tax lawyer, there are only two clients. There's HMRC and there is the the taxpayer or um, very often the non-taxpayer. And I had always sought work from HMRC, but as it happened, most of the work I did was taxpayer work. 
So, you know, I had lots of clients who knew where the bodies were buried, um, mostly because they'd buried them themselves. Uh, and so I was able to write um, with some authority, professional authority at least, about the issues that Margaret Hodge was raising. In between university, or in between leaving school and starting university, I worked at the BBC and I wrote whilst at the BBC a, uh, a play that um, the BBC broadcast. Uh, and then I worked briefly as a sort of semi-professional writer. Um, so I had that ability to communicate uh, about tax stuff. But I think more than that, I actually had the desire. So there were very, very few tax professionals who wanted to uh, talk about tax avoidance in the public sphere. Almost none of them who'd wanted to talk about it, who were prepared to talk about it, were prepared to talk about it in ways that added fuel to the sort of fire of ethics and morals that Margaret Hodge had, had, had started. But I, I was very interested then, and um, it's very much a part of my life now, in this relationship that the law has with, with broader society. So I began writing a blog called Waiting for Tax. A colleague described it as the sort of longest suicide note in history of a successful practice, because at the time I had you know, a very, very successful, a very lucrative practice. None of my colleagues could understand why I was blowing it up. But it started me on the path to the life that I'd always wanted. It's interesting, actually, today, there is a scrap going on between the International Bar Association that is pushing for lawyers to be more mindful of the ethical obligations they owe to broader society. And Nick Vinial, Casey, who's the chair of the Bar Council, who is pushing back, who wants to maintain the world that hitherto has existed in England, um, of lawyers not having any broader ethical duties, them continuing to be expensive members of a private militia that only the rich can afford. That's very much not my perception of what the law should be and the work that lawyers should do. And you see that actually in all sorts of bits of my professional life. Most recently, a sort of figurehead in this declaration that 170-odd lawyers signed saying that they wouldn't act advancing new fossil fuel infrastructure uh, in effect, saying we were going to breach the cab rank rule, at least for those of that 170 who were bound by it. That, it seemed to me, was a piece of important engagement that the law has with the, the wider world, and I knew which side of that um, I wanted to be on. And I think, actually, what's so interesting to me about that is the parallels with the solicitor's profession, who don't have the cab rank rule, but I think that some of the um, mores of the cab rank rule have filtered into solicitors' conception of how they interact with clients and who they should say no to and not say no to and that sort of thing. Um, and I'm, I'm really talking here about solicitors who don't operate in the criminal um, context, but in a, a commercial context, because the Law Society has just put out guidance very recently on climate change, reminding solicitors that the choice over whether they take a client or not and whether that impacts on their philosophical beliefs around climate is, is something which is protected under employment law. 
And I thought that was a very interesting statement that the Law Society had come out and said at around about the same time that I remember the 170 um, barristers signed their statement. So I think there's, there are some very interesting undercurrents going on at the moment. Um, I also heard you talking about your writing career, which I wasn't fully aware of, and which is very interesting because I do know you have a new book coming out. Can you talk to me about the motivations? You've, you've had this amazing career change. You've blown up your tax practice. You've had this amazing career change. And now you're writing a book or you've written a book, which is out called Bringing Down Goliath. And what drew you to writing that book and putting it out for people? It was not something I'd ever really planned to do, um, to write a book. I mean, I still have a couple of tax cases left. I have a, a young family who I adore. I have the very absorbing and time-consuming work of Good Law Project, uh, which now has sort of, you know, approaching 50 staff. Uh, and there wasn't obviously time for me to write a, a book alongside all of those other activities as well. But um, I kept being approached by publishers. I mean, like repeatedly, every month there'd be another approach, will you write something? And um, you always have this sort of siren voice of your agent or a publisher whispering in your ear saying, yours is an important voice, Jolie, and the world needs to hear it. And of course, you know, that that's designed to flatter your ego, but that doesn't entirely stop it flattering your ego. But I also knew that I had a very, very avid following on social media. I have, I don't know, 420 odd, 430,000 followers on Twitter, and we have a very, very big mailing list of like 350,000 people. Uh, and a lot of people are genuinely interested in what I have to say. So, I mean, I spoke at the Hay Literary Festival. I sold out very, very quickly a tent of 700 people. Uh, and so um, eventually I had a conversation with my agent and he said, this guy, Jamie Joseph uh, at Penguin Random House, um, probably is the right editor for you. Um, and I met Jamie a couple of times and I agreed, he and I agreed that I'd write uh, the book that became Bring Down Goliath. And it's a book, it's a complicated book, actually, um, thematically, in that it tackles power relationships, I suppose, within the law. Um, so one of the Goliaths is the Goliath of the law. And it does that through a little bit of personal history, because the motivations to my actions are inseparable from, uh, from the actions Nobody without some kind of pathology um, puts themselves in the firing line as often as I do. I think pathologies can be the engines for good as well as destructive. And I wanted to tackle what I saw were serious um, structural failings in how the law operates those stories don't get told very often, actually, because um, lawyers are very, very good at arguing. And because they're very, very good at arguing, they're very, very effective gatekeepers of um, the stories that the law likes to tell about itself. And the law is complicated to outsiders. Uh, and the combination of those features means that outsiders don't really get to interrogate very, very risky for them to interrogate what happens within the profession. So you kind of need to be an insider to do it. And most insiders aren't terribly interested in doing it. 
you know, it's that same kind of dynamic actually as with my tax practice blowing up my relationship with my my tax clients uh, present in the decision to 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 write the book, and then you know you need to tell those stories in a way that reaches a non-legal audience. I wasn't writing the book for, for lawyers. I was writing the book for, for others. Uh, and so I had to find a, a structure that would make it accessible and readable to the general public. So it's kind of all in the first person. It's told through the device of stories. And, um, you know, it's been pretty successful. It charted at number three in the UK bestseller charts. When it was released, it continues to sell well today. It had a very, very hostile reception from the sorts of um, interests uh, that the book attacks. Um, but I'm kind of used to that. You know, there's rarely a day when I wake up without something nasty on one of the sort of right wing or far right political blogs. So you just kind of, you know, I've kind of made my peace with 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 that as being one of the unfortunate consequences of doing the work that I do. Uh, but I'm very, very proud of it. And, you know, people read it and they write to me and they say, um, you know, I, I, I saw that review, that very, very hostile review, and I thought, God, maybe Jolien's written a really, really bad book, but I know Jolien, so I'll read the book anyway. And and, and it, it's nothing at all like the review. It bears no relationship at all to the book that that review describes. And I hear that over and over and over and over again. It's an important piece of work for me, actually. And I think, as always, when you embark on an exercise that is a, a complicated exercise, and I've tried to describe some of the complexities in the structure and the themes and the audience, you know, you have a pretty good go first time, but it's only over time that the ideas, those complicated ideas resolve to something um, that's more intellectually settled, that's simpler. Uh, I think it was, was it T.S. Eliot who talked about um, the simplicity that is the result of great labor. So maybe, you know, there's another book to come on on, on the, the, the Goliath that is the, the, the law. I do hope so. That would be wonderful. I wanted to talk a bit about the Good Law Project as well, uh, which is an organisation I've been following for many years now. And one thing that I'm insatiably curious about is that you must have many requests for cases or many ideas for cases that you could pursue. How on earth do you choose at this point? Yeah, Um so the starting point in the answer to that question is our funding model. So our funding model is members of the public. You know, less than 10% of our income comes from bigger donors. So if we want to maintain or increase that funding model, we have to take cases that resonate um, with members of the public. Um, so that's definitely one of the features that a good law project case has to have, it has to be resonant. And it has to be resonant because that's where we get our funding from, but it also has to be resonant because that's our theory of change. So in a country without a higher law, like the United Kingdom, 
the law isn't really that powerful. You know, you bring a landmark political judicial review and you succeed, and very often your reward is a declaration, which doesn't have any substantive effect. And sometimes, as I talk about in Bring Down Goliath, ministers just say, well, uh, I've seen the declaration, um, it's wrong. I think I did the right thing, whatever the, the judges say the law is. And what has that what has that really accomplished? Also, we have a government that increasingly is in what sort of um, political scientists call perpetual campaigning mode. So it's not interested in acting as the public interest dictates. It's not interested in acting consistently with the law. It's uh, not interested in good policy. It's interested in maintaining its electability. It treats governing as campaigning. And so if you want to um, cause that government to change course, if you want to have impact, causing the government to change course is probably a pretty good definition of impact, you have to speak in the language uh, that it hears, and the language that it hears is the language of political pain. So you have to have cases that resonate for funding reasons, and you also have to have cases that resonate because it is that resonance as much as the legal outcome that gives you your your impact. You know, we don't take on the easiest of cases. We could be a flat track bully um, picking very easy cases. We could have a 100% win rate. I mean, I'm absolutely certain of that. But that would trade impact, which only comes if you take on power, for vanity, right? I could say I've won every single case that um, Good Law Project has brought, uh, and that would make me feel better. But the cost of doing that would be much less impact. We can only win all of our cases if we take on smaller interests, if we're the the bully rather than um, the David in that bringing down Goliath title. And if we take on small problems rather than big ones. So so um, we don't go for easy legal cases. It trades impact for vanity. But they have to have you know sensible legal content, and we're very, very lucky. Um, most of the legal profession is very, very keen to work with us because the cases we bring are groundbreaking and important and interesting. So we get access to the very best that the bar has to offer. Beyond that, you know, we have some some themes within which we work. So we're interested in holding power to account. We're interested in communities that are minoritized, set upon. We call that strand our sort of no one left behind work. Uh, and we're increasingly doing a lot of environmental litigation. And in that space, uh, I suppose like the others, we're a very, very different actor. So I have enormous admiration for the work that Client Earth does. But its theory of change is very different from ours. It believes in the power of the law to effect change. And fundamentally, we think that what the law can do in the climate space is give people a sense of agency so communities can take on bad decisions uh, and with the law can change them, combination of the law and campaigning. And we can give journalists new ways to write about environmental law issues. It's very, very difficult if you're a journalist and you know yet another incredibly depressing scientific report on you know the destruction of 
the planet lands? How do you carry that in a way that doesn't cause your readers to turn away? How do you carry that in a way that doesn't fill people with despair when what you really want to do is fill them with hope because that hope sparks action? Well, you know, here are some campaigners bringing a piece of litigation that will make things better. Perhaps um, there's a copycat bit of litigation that you can do in your community. That's a good news story that journalists like to cover that gives people hope. So we have some themes, we look for saliency, and, you know, I have a very, very good um, senior management team, and we talk about the cases we're going to bring, we're contemplating bringing, and we wrestle with whether they are salient, will be impactful, have decent prospects of success, might enable us to reach new audiences, and we arrive at a collective decision. I mean, you know, lots of people say that this is all me. Um, That's not true, and kind of misogynistic as well, actually, because all of my SMT are women. Uh, and none of them are shrinking violets who smile sweetly and do what I tell them. Um, <laughs> they would be laughing if they were listening to that imputed description of them, imputed by this notion that I get to choose and everyone else carries out my my, my whim like some king on his throne. That's absolutely fascinating. I'd never thought of it from so many different angles. That's absolutely, absolutely fascinating. You slightly floored me for words. The Hearing. On the outside, you're a lawyer, calm and cool, but inside there's a passion to perform, a drive to be absolutely on your game. You prepare hour after hour, day after day, in the pursuit of excellence, relying on superior resources, serious preparation, and total confidence. That's the advantage we give you. Be your best with Thomson Reuters Practical Law. I'm Kim Vanell. Join me every morning for a roundup of what's happening at home and around the world. From the front line in Ukraine. Extraordinary how these people adjust and uh, even laugh when you take cover. To the heart of US politics. When Trump said that he expected to be arrested, it seems like he was trying to get ahead of the story. We bring you everything you need to know in 10 minutes. For your essential daily briefing, follow Reuters World News wherever you get your podcasts. I wanted to ask about your success rate. And past the reason I wanted to ask about it is a couple of days ago, I got an email in my inbox from the Good Law Project talking about settling and success rates and things like that. And so it seems that that would be a good time to ask you about that. Yeah. So um, our success rate compares very well with any baseline. So people don't know how hard judicial reviews are to win and how much harder, in fact, they have become to win in in, in recent times. So as of today, about one in every 40 judicial review cases that is commenced succeeds. Judicial reviews are very, very hard to win. And that one in 40 figure is much, much smaller than how many JRs succeeded five years ago. So it's sort of more than halved the the success rate. So against that baseline, we do very, very well. 
um, you know, we publish on our website a list of every single case Good Law Project or me wearing my Good Law Project hat has ever brought or funded. And we list the legal outcome, we list the campaigning outcome in as far as it's possible to, to understand it. I mean, it's always difficult to know what part of a campaigning outcome you can claim responsibility for. You can see correlation, you can't always see causation. We have a guess, but you know, it's necessarily impressionistic. You know, we're criticized a lot for losing a lot of cases, but these narratives, it's a bit like the book, really. These narratives that our enemies in the right wing press push bear no relationship at all to the truth. But ultimately, I think our success rate is its kind of the wrong metric, actually. We could um, increase our success rate by going after weaker, less impactful cases. We could diminish our success rate by taking on even more ambitious litigation. Neither of those courses of action would be necessarily right or necessarily wrong. So it follows that what we presently do is also neither necessarily right nor necessarily wrong. Seems to me that the resolution to the issue is in transparency, right? The duty that we owe, we owe to the people who fund us. uh, And we have to explain to them what impact we achieve as best we can. We have to be very, very transparent about the cases that we bring uh, and the use we make of the money they give us. And we have to let them decide. You know, if you look on social media, Twitter is full of lawyers saying that the members of the public who fund us don't understand what they're doing, um, they're stupid, they don't get it. That's not my experience, I have to say. I think most of the people who give us money feel very, very strongly um, that Good Law Project is doing a very, very good and important thing. And their analysis of power and politics might well be more sophisticated than many of my lawyer critics. And certainly their understanding of the importance of power being held to account, I think, is more sophisticated. You know, we're best in class when it comes to transparency, right? We routinely put up all of the legal documents In the cases we run, not many people do that. We're very, very quick to update on good news or bad news. You know, we don't, forgive the expression, put lipstick on a pig when we lose. We try to live our values. We demand um, good governance, transparency and accountability from government. And it's very important to me that we perform it ourselves. Of course, we don't always get it right. You know, we do do our best. Winning and losing. Obviously, these cases are going to be impacting people on a personal level. Can you talk a bit more about that? Because it, I think that a lot of the time we look at these cases, we see people standing outside the court and giving press interviews, but we don't always get a sense of the personal stories that are going on, almost kind of crowded out, if you like, by the, the huge institutions that they've got caught up in. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of our cases are about principles. 
So let me just kind of ignore those for a moment and let me talk about some of the more personal cases that we do. So uh, I have um, in my life uh, a number of women who have been sexually assaulted and some of them raped. And I know um, I'm not unusual in that. The stats suggest that about one in every five um, women uh, in the country has been raped. And I bet that every woman who is listening to this podcast will have um, in her metaphorical back pocket a list of atrocities effected upon her by men. And the criminal justice system is really, really bad, appallingly bad at deterring that conduct. So it's about 1% of women who are raped who see their rapist convicted, you know, homeopathic levels of of conviction. And the Lord does not do enough to deter rapes. It lets women down by failing to deter rapists. Um, And it's worse than that because um, what the law does very often, along with failing to deter rapists, is it encourages them to silence their victims. So over the years, I've seen a lot of cases of uh, women who were sexually assaulted or raped, who named their assaulter, abuser, rapist, and were then sued and had to take down sometimes and apologize, sometimes and pay costs to the man who assaulted or raped them. And that's been a real cause of sadness and anger for me for a long time. And a couple of months ago, working with Tamsin Allen at Bynum's and Jonathan Price, I should say, at Doughty Street Chambers, um, we funded a case uh, for a woman called Nina Creswell, who'd been seriously sexually assaulted and was being sued by the man who um, assaulted her um, for defamation. And in the High Court, we established that her statement that this man had sexually assaulted her was true on a balance of probabilities. But also, we established a public interest defence that if you spoke out about someone who had raped or sexually assaulted you, you might be protected from defamation proceedings, even though you could not prove the truth of what you had said. So that case will have an enormously profound impact on an enormous number of women. As I said earlier in my answer, substantially every woman listening to this podcast could benefit from that decision. And I know how important it was to to Nina, that um, experience, Uh, his defamation action could well have destroyed her. And I've spoken to her privately, and I'm not going to share those conversations, but they were incredibly important to her. I mean, on a similar theme, not involving legal action, but work that we have done to advance um, the cause of women sexually assaulted and holding the law as a sort of reserve power, enabling us to do this work, was um, exposing the lack of interest in sexual assaults 
um, sexual harassment at Guardian News and Media. So there were a number of women who for many years had been complaining about being sexually assaulted by senior men at The Guardian. And uh, we helped those women. I called out the particular journalist who they had been assaulted by publicly. And we forced, I would say, we forced The Guardian to get rid of him. And uh, Kath Viner, the editor of The Guardian, wrote to many of those women apologising for Guardian News and Media's failings. And the story was on the front page of the New York Times. And uh, those women have spoken about how important that work was to them. So Lucy Siegel has said that but for our help, she would have been bulldozered. This particular journalist had a habit of sending defamation threats to people who spoke publicly about his misconduct. And they were incredibly grateful for that that help. And, you know, these are, these are all stories in their way about people being bullied, people who don't have a voice being denied the right to tell their truths, uh, about the law being misused to silence those who are financially or structurally weaker, abuses of, of the law, but also abuses of the law that speak to my own personal history, my own background. Um, and that's probably another way of returning to the question with which we began uh, about why uh, Bringing Down Goliath begins with that sort of chapter of biography. It is the driver for so much of what I, what I try to do. So the personal is political, but it's also the personal is legal. The personal is political and the politics is expressed through the law. I mean, when, um, when Joe Biden was inaugurated, Barack Obama gave a speech talking about how Biden, who lost his wife uh, and I think one of his children in a car crash when he was a, a young man, had turned pain into purpose. And that line really resonated with me as well. Two people of colour, Barack Obama and, and Bell Hooks, with very, very similar points, perhaps reflecting the universal experience of being outside, um, that it carries with it enormous um, pain. And you have to find a way to, to live with that. And sometimes uh, you can find a way to harness that pain, that pathology, uh, to fuel things that are good. I know that we don't have very much time left, but I did want to sneak one more question in about your work on the VIP lane for COVID PPE, because we have talked a lot, I think, about justice and vulnerable people and systems of power. But I also wanted to just very briefly touch on your work in relation to corruption and systems of power and whether you would be able to just talk about the impact that those cases had on the government and, and has it changed procurement practices for the future? Yeah, 
I mean, it was a really interesting sequence of cases, the um, VIP lane procurement cases. Interesting uh, because it sort of proved our theory of change. So at one point in time, I think in November or December 2021, um, we had won one of those cases, uh, a case called Public First, about whether Dominic Cummings had, and Michael Gove had given contracts to their friends. But no one really cared. There hadn't been much pickup in the media. But another of our cases uh, about whether the VIP lane, this system that civil servants in the cabinet office set up to prefer the associates of ministers and uh, donors to the Conservative Party in the giving of hugely lucrative PPE contracts, you know, generating profits of tens, sometimes hundreds of millions of pounds, was lawful. We didn't have a decision on our case about whether the VIP lane was unlawful, but we had completely changed the narrative. We had caused everyone through that litigation to understand how corrupt um, was the procurement process that government initiated during the pandemic. I use that word corruption. Uh, you've got a legal audience, so let me just talk a little bit about that. You know, to a lawyer, maybe corruption is a term of art. Uh, to a non-lawyer, I think it means putting the being influenced by the wrong considerations in awarding money. And it's pretty clear that um, many of those contracts went to donors, friends, associates of ministers, just because they possessed that quality of associate, friend, donor. And that's what I mean when I talk about corruption. The cases were enormously impactful. You know, we had literally thousands of pieces of coverage in um, the mainstream media, so in the national newspapers and national broadcasters during the course of a single year. Lots and lots of leader pieces commending us for our work. We won the first two of those cases. And they led to Rishi Sunak sending out a press release saying that unless judges stopped Good Law Project, and I was mentioned in that press release by name 10 times, Jolien Morm, Search that press release. I mentioned 10 times by name in that press release. Unless judges stopped us, recidivist judges, he called them, he would change the law and he wouldn't even need the consent of parliament. He would do it by statutory instrument. So a totally extraordinary thing. And I talk about this in Bringing Down Goliath as well. Judges were spooked. They were spooked by that very, very hostile stance that the executive was adopting towards them, uh, the threats that it was issuing. And in Bring Down Goliath, I talk about a senior court of appeal judge who let it be known that claimants were going to lose a lot of cases because judges were worried about judicial review being closed down. And rather than risk judicial review being closed down, they acted not in a way wholly consistent with their judicial oath to act without fear or favour. They acted with fear uh, and they found against 
complaints. And since Rishi Sunak's press release, which calls explicitly for Good Law Project no longer to have standing in its case, has said that we shouldn't have standing. We haven't been found to have standing in any case subsequent. Now, correlation isn't causation, um, but the correlation is pretty striking because initially judges were saying and finding on the facts that, that, that we should and did have standing. And then they changed course. I mean, the notion that there is no public interest in the award of procurement contracts worth hundreds of millions of pounds to associates, friends of ministers, donors to the Conservative Party, that that's a purely private matter as between um, successful bidders and underbidders, I find pretty difficult, to be honest. I think it's a, a matter that the expenditure of enormous sums of public money in ways that are, um, to put it at its lowest, um, difficult politically, um, is plainly a matter of public interest. And I think perhaps the thing that I'm angriest about um, emerging from those cases is this contrast that the court seems to have landed on. So some of your listeners will know of the case brought by Lord Rees-Mogg, Jacob Rees-Mogg's dad, challenging the Maastricht Treaty. Uh, and the question of standing is discussed in the decision, and the court says no one doubts Lord Rees-Mogg's sincere interest in constitutional matters or in the Maastricht Treaty. And that was sufficient. Both sides agreed for him to have standing. Well, some of our cases are funded by tens of thousands of people. They care very, very much uh, about procurement, whether procurement is fair or whether it's just a way of passing public money to your political friends. They care enough to dip their hands into their pockets to make um, for them very sizable donations. They may not be peers of the realm. They may not be editors of the Times, former editors of the Times, as Lord Rees-Mogg was. But nevertheless, the law ought to protect their sincere interest as well. And I think, analytically, what the judiciary has done is incapable of justification and reflects uh, a very, very damaging truth about the law that it does not do what it says. It does not protect the weak. It does not wear a blindfold. It does not hold up scales that treat the weak and the powerful, uh, the rich and the poor alike. It has inherent within it all sorts of power biases that cause it, the law, to embed rather than challenge privilege. And, um, you know, those are very, very difficult heretical things for a King's Counsel or indeed any lawyer to say. I, I, I know that. But I'm very angry about them still. And, um, you know, consistently with how I've conducted myself hitherto, I will speak what seems to me to be the truth, whatever the personal cost. That's the pathology again, and you have to challenge yourself constantly to ask the question, um, is that a constructive or a destructive pathology? I hope um, it's a constructive one. I mean, I kind of think all of this stuff has to be assessed at the level of an ecology, 
right? We all know that from the expression of lots of different views, some supportive, some challenging, some vigorously challenging, the truth has the best chance of sort of emerging or, or synthesizing. I hope my voice is worth listening to. Uh, I hope uh, bringing down Goliath and the points that it makes are worth reading. I don't see others making these points and I think they're very, very important. I hope you enjoyed getting to know Jolien Morn as much as I did. And I want to say a huge thank you to him for coming on the show. If you enjoyed this episode, then please do like and subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. Or send us an email at thehearing at thompsonreuters.com. I've been Becky Anderson, and thank you for listening. The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash the hearing. Or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.